Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 welcome to the georgine rice show podcast this program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 kpdq we hope you enjoy the show well good afternoon and welcome to the monday edition of the georgine rice show james blend is producing dave king engineering today's program Coming up in the second half of today's program, a conversation I had with Pastor Greg Allen of Bethany Bible Church on revival and the Great Awakening. Are we in the midst of one? Are we anticipating one? We'll explain historically what that means. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, today, of course, is Juneteenth. It is now officially a federal holiday. The elimination of slavery in the United States as an institution, one that's as old as human civilization, but out of step with the nation's founding principles, did not happen all at once. And in fact, Juneteenth itself makes that uh, makes that case. Well, during the Civil War, the freeing of slaves came in many stages, starting with President Abraham Lincoln's famed Emancipation Proclamation of 1863. But a declaration on paper didn't mean that slavery was eliminated in reality. Years of hard fighting to save the nation from dissolution and to ensure the freedom of southern black slaves lay ahead for a Union army. Emancipation came in waves and often simply followed the march of the Union army. They would enforce that emancipation. Texas, for example, was far from the main action in the Civil War, so it took longer for the practice um, uh, the practical effects of Union victory and the Emancipation Proclamation to take effect there. In fact, it took two full months of emancipation to reach the Lone Star State after General Robert E. Lee's surrender at Appomattox. Most Confederate holdouts finally capitulated in June, after which the Union occupied the state and put it under military command. When Union General Gordon Granger steamed into Galveston, Texas, on the 19th of June, 1865, as the newly appointed commander of the District of Texas, one of his first orders of business was to declare all the state's slaves free. His proclamation read as follows. The people of Texas are informed that, in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them uh, becomes that between employer and hired labor. It certainly sounded good on paper. It didn't quite work itself out that way. He went on. The freedom... Uh, The freedmen are advised to remain quietly at their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and that they will not be allowed or supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. I command of Major General Granger. Well, it may seem strange to Americans accustomed to having instant news access throughout the, uh, uh, you know, all the communication devices we currently have and the Internet. But many of the slaves in Texas and their owners had no idea that Lincoln had even issued an Emancipation Proclamation two years earlier. The immediate response of former slaves wasn't exactly jubilation. 
as many lived in fear of retribution from their former masters. Nevertheless, a year later, many of the freed slaves began celebrating Juneteenth, the holiday in recognition of their freedom. At risk of violence, thousands came out to celebrate what to them was freedom at last, and the risks were indeed great. Though they were technically protected from the Freedmen's Bureau, a temporary agency for transitioning black freedmen to the new life of liberty and the Union Army, such protection was no guarantee of safety. Not everyone, even the Freedmen's Association and the Union Army, was in favor of equality. The New York Times described the festivities 150 years later, embraced as an exuberant day of jubilation. Juneteenth continued to combined a history lesson and a political rally with the gospel hymns, sermons of church services, barbecues were soon added to the mix, this being Texas, with strawberry-flavored red soda water to wash it all down. In time, rodeos, baseball games, and family reunions all became part of Juneteenth traditions, and it's only been recently that it's been widely understood across the nation. Juneteenth is thought to be the oldest known celebration of the end of slavery in the United States. It eventually became national, yet it is often overlooked. In the grand arc of world history, tyranny is common. Liberty is rare. It is a monumental triumph of American civilization that within a century of its creation, the institution of slavery, which had planted its roots so deeply, was eradicated in the United States through the power of the founding ideals and the force of the U.S. military. It has never been perfectly applied, but it began when slavery was abolished. For many Americans, the abolition of slavery fulfilled the promise of our nation's founding. The timeless truths enshrined in the Declaration of Independence would at last apply to everyone as they were intended, even though it was not lived out as Faithfully, as one would hope, we are still moving in that direction. Again, Juneteenth is observed on June the 19th on the list of federal holidays of of the United States under this current administration. Texas, the last rebel state, officially abolished slavery on the 19th of June, 1865. Slavery remained in effect after Confederate General Robert E. Lee's surrender to the Union. Ulysses S. Grant in Virginia on the 9th of April in 1865 and Lincoln's death on the 15th of April, 1865, according to historians. Approximately 250,000 slaves were freed in Texas following the Army's announcement. President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which went into effect on the 1st of January, 1863. The 13th Amendment was passed by Congress two years later, officially abolishing the institution of slavery. And again, Texas was the last state in rebellion following the end of the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, following the surrender of Lee in April and the arrival of Granger's regiment, the Union forces were strong enough to enforce Lincoln's executive order and freedom came to the last vestige of slavery, at least on paper. Juneteenth is named for the word June, the month when it took place, and the number 19th, the exact date. So Juneteenth. Before the name Juneteenth was used to title the day, other names were also used. Emancipation Day, Jubilee Day, Freedom Day, and Black Independence Day. All right, we're going to take a break. When we return, we'll take a look at some of the day's headlines, so stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that tonight, 1159, is the final day and time that you can purchase your tickets for the uh, Stand Up Girls, well, celebration. You can cheer on the Hops versus Everett Aqua Sox. Um, that's coming up, so... Uh, 
Check it out. Tickets tonight. It's the Star Wars night. Closing at 11.59 tonight if you'd like to join them and support this great ministry. The game, by the way, is June 23rd at 7.05 p.m. at Ron Tonkin Field. And uh, you can support Stand Up Girl and enjoy a great game at the same time. Well, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken told NBC News on Monday that his trip to Beijing marked an important start in stabilizing U.S. ties with China and that the country should move on from the spy balloon incident that postponed his visit earlier this year. Should simply move on. He said that chapter should be closed in an interview before leaving Beijing, where he spent two days meeting with senior Chinese officials and President Xi Jinping. While stopping the downward spiral in relations between the world's two largest economies is not the product of one visit, even as intense in some ways productive as this was, Blinken said. But it's a good it is a good and I think important start. U.S. officials said played down expectations for the trip, saying any breakthroughs were unlikely. Even after Blinken's visit, the two countries have yet to restore several military to military communication channels that China cut last year to protest a former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, a self-ruling democracy that Beijing claims as its territory. Blinken said it was imperative for that uh, communication to be reestablished, citing recent encounters in the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea that China says were necessary to defend its national sovereignty that the U.S. has labeled dangerous. That's the quickest path to an inadvertent conflict, Blinken said. And added that restoring the channel was not something we're going to drop. The Secretary of State also reiterated that U.S. support for the one China policy remains, saying that the U.S. does not support Taiwanese independence following a meeting with President Xi. We do not support Taiwan independence, Blinken said in a press conference on Monday. We remain opposed to any unilateral changes to the status quo by either side. We continue to expect the peaceful resolution of cross-strait differences. We remain committed to continuing our responsibilities under the Taiwan Relations Act including making sure Taiwan has the ability to defend itself. It seems like a contradictory position. We do not support an independent Taiwan, but we are willing to uh, support them militarily should their independence be challenged. It's a bit difficult to comprehend, but that's why I'm not the Secretary of State, I suppose. At the same time, we and many others have deep concerns about some of the provocative actions that China has taken in recent years. Going back to 2018, Blinken went on. And the reason that this is a concern for so many countries, not just the United States, is that there are uh, that there were uh, to be a a crisis over Taiwan. The likelihood is that could produce an economic crisis that could affect quite literally the entire world. End quote. Well, 50 percent of commercial container traffic goes through the Taiwan Strait every day. Seventy percent of semiconductors are manufactured in Taiwan. If as a result of a crisis that uh, was taken offline, it would have dramatic consequences for virtually every country around the world. He uh, went on to point out Well, Blinken's comment comes with increased tensions between China and the United States related to Taiwan. Last week, Taiwan's Air Force scrambled fighter jets after a group of 10 Chinese aircraft crossed the medium line of the Taiwan Strait for the second time in a matter of days. This month, the U.S. military released video of a close encounter between a Chinese naval ship and an American destroyer in the Taiwan Strait. And there have been several close calls between Chinese and U.S. military aircraft recently, including an air intercept by a Chinese fighter jet over the South China Sea in May. A federal judge approved a uh, a request from special counsel Jack Smith on Monday to keep Donald Trump and his co-defendant and aide Walter Nata 
from releasing sensitive information in their classified documents case. Trump has been indicted on 37 criminal counts, including willful retention of national defense information, conspiracy to obstruct justice and making false statements. Smith sought the order last Friday to ensure that Trump and Nada did not disclose evidence made available during discovery. The discovery materials, along with any information derived therefrom, shall not be disclosed to the public or the news media or disseminated on any news or social media platform without prior notice to and consent of the United States or approval of the court. That's uh, what the judge, Bruce Reinhardt, wrote, who also approved the warrant to search Mar-a-Lago last year. Defendants shall only have access to discovery materials under the direct supervision of defense counsel or a member of the defense counsel's staff. Defendants shall not retain copies of discovery material, end quote. Well, Smith and his colleagues said the material included sensitive and confidential information and also information pertaining to ongoing investigations, the, the disclosure of which could compromise those investigations and identify uncharged individuals. Violations of the orders could result in contempt of court or civil or criminal sanctions. The order went on to explain. A rescue mission is underway after a vessel used to take tourists to see the underwater wreck of the Titanic went missing in the Atlantic Ocean on Monday. The U.S. Coast Guard confirmed that they are currently searching for a lost uh, Titan sub, uh, submersible. Tourists can charter the small craft for visits to the infamous ship through Ocean Gate Expeditions, which recently announced new uh, mission crews for the North Atlantic trip on social media. The Coast Guard says there are five people on board consisting of one crew member and four mission specialists. Uh, they are currently conducting an air search for the vehicle as it's uh, designed to surface automatically if there are technical issues. U.K. billionaire Hamish Harding is reportedly on board that submersible. The USCG uh, Northeast has deployed a C-130 aircraft to search for the vehicle on the surface. A research coordinator, uh, uh, coordination center Halifax has also deployed a P-8 Orion aircraft, which can drop sonar buoys to uh, search underwater. Other aircraft are en route from both the United States and Canada. The Titan submersible is advertised to have enough life support to keep five people alive for 96 hours, meaning that earlier in the day when this report was released, they still had 72 hours. Well, that has shortened considerably to find that vehicle unless it suffered catastrophic failure and failed to surface. OceanGate announced uh, on Twitter earlier in June that it was relying on Elon Musk's Starlink to provide um, Internet and communications connection during the expedition. It's not clear whether communications played any role in the submersible going missing. OceanGate charges tourists $250,000 for a spot on their expeditions to the Titanic wreckage. We'll have to find out once they've recovered it, was it worth it? Oregon Senate Republicans successfully pushed state Democrats into eliminating a portion of a proposed bill that would have allowed minors to obtain abortions without parental consent. Democrats threw out the radical provision of House Bill 2002 after Republican state senators launched the longest walkout in state history, a six-week week, rather peaceful protest that could put the political careers of at least 10 GOP lawmakers at risk under a ballot measure passed by voters last year. A group of Republican and Democrat congressional lawmakers have sent a letter to the State Department that requests the Biden administration expand the Abraham Accords in Africa to counter the influence of American adversaries. The bipartisan congressional letter states, we believe it is in our national security interest as well as 
in the interests of sustainability for the Biden administration to continue strengthening and expanding the accords and to further promote normalization with Israel of the African continent, end quote. Well, the Trump administration negotiated the groundbreaking Abraham Accords first signed in 2020. That secured diplomatic relations between four Muslim-majority countries with Israel. Those countries include the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan. The signatories to the letter wrote, We would request a written response outlining the department's current and future efforts to implement a strategy that advances Israeli normalization into Africa and grow the work of the accords there. Uh, Mills, a decorated Army combat veteran who speaks Arabic, warned about the influence of U.S. adversaries, Iran, Russia, North Korea and China on the African continent. Uh, We do know that Africa plays a key element uh, when it comes to China's Belt and Road Initiative. He said he said Alberto Fernandez, who served as U.S. charged affairs and. Sudan from 2007 to 2009 said the bipartisan letter is a very important push to change the dynamics in Africa because there is a kind of anti-normalization coalition within the African Union. There are countries that do not want to see better relations with Israel. However, the door is ajar for expanding diplomatic relations between Israel and African countries. Fernandez, who is the vice president of the Middle East Media Research Institute, said he also said the current efforts by the administration to seal a new nuclear deal is a slap in the face of the Obama, uh, the Abraham Accords, adding that the White House wants to deal with the biggest opponent of the Abraham Accords, Iran. Fernandez said the current efforts by the Biden administration to seal a new nuclear deal is that slap in the face And he's hoping the biggest opponent to the Abraham Accords can be, well, put off. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, a reminder coming up in the second hour of today's program, a conversation I had with Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church on Revival. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. While major media outlets have decided to ignore the president's ripping a reporter for asking him dumb questions, as the president put it, throughout his term, there was often fierce attention paid to the former president's spats with the fourth estate. Well, after Biden blasted New York Post reporter Stephen Nelson last week for asking a dumb question about allegations as the vice president, Uh, The president received five million dollars from a Ukrainian executive working on the same energy firm as his son, Hunter. Both CNN and MSNBC ignored the exchange, according to searches of their transcripts. The New York Times, Washington Post and other major legacy outlets, they also skipped the story. But those outlets often berated Trump for any spat he had with journalists during the historically acrimonious relationship he had with the press in office and mourned the lack of decorum. Outlets including the New York Times, Axios, CNN, Washington Post and NBC have called Trump out for viciously attacking journalists and encouraging an environment that is dangerous for them. Apparently, the danger is tolerable these days. The government wildly unprepared for criminals using AI to lie, cheat and steal. For years leading up to 2020, experts warned that the next national emergency like the 08 financial crisis would lead to billions in fraud losses. Well, when COVID-19 hit, warnings became a reality. 
Hundreds of billions of dollars were plundered from the coffers of vital government programs. Rent relief, unemployment benefits, SNAP benefits, and PPP loans became piggy banks for thousands of domestic and transnational cyber criminals. Then, when state-level labor departments realized that hundreds of billions of dollars worth of fraudulent unemployment claims were being paid out, many turned to facial recognition systems to verify the identities of the claimants. As early as 2020, observers warned AI-generated deepfakes would be used to circumvent those systems, and lo and behold, that's exactly what's happening. Criminals are now using our faces to steal from the government. They're filing tax returns, submitting unemployment claims, they're impersonating our voices, faces, and identities, and it's largely going undetected. Today, experts are sounding the alarm again AI, particularly generative AI, poses the greatest risk to security of our most vital government agencies and entitlement programs than we've ever faced. Sophisticated AI algorithms have the potential to commit large-scale fraud across multiple sectors. Trained on public or leaked data sets, they can predict the structure of sensitive information such as social security numbers, creating synthetic identities and generating fraudulent health care claims, defense contracts, tax returns and aid applications. The degree of accuracy can be alarmingly high and AI driven automation can further exacerbate the problem by overwhelming our detection and prevention systems with a deluge of fraudulent submissions. Well, in the realm of Medicare and Medicaid, AI could fabricate seemingly legitimate medical claims leading to the loss of billions of dollars. Funds intended to ensure that low income families and seniors can access vital health care services. Perhaps this time lawmakers will listen before The disaster strikes. Presidential candidate Chris Christie slammed the Republican National Committee's requirement that candidates pledge support for the GOP's eventual presidential nominee. Look, I think the pledge is just a useless idea. Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, told CNN's Jake Tapper on Sunday during the State of the Union. Earlier this month, the RNC released the requirements Republican candidates must fulfill in order to take part in primary debates, including reaching 1% in three national polls, amassing 40,000 unique donors to their campaign committee, and signing a pledge agreeing to support the eventual Republican presidential nominee. The RNC said last week it would not amend its presidential campaign pledge following pushback from 2024 candidate Asa Hutchinson, who criticized the possibility that candidates uh, uh, would be pledging support for a potential convicted felon. Also, the defense contracts aren't immune. AI could generate bogus companies and uh, impact the debates as well. We'll continue to follow what actually happens and what the RNC decides to do. Mark Short, who served as chief of staff for former Vice President Mike Pence, condemned the pardons former President Donald Trump handed down in the final hours of his administration. Short made the comments during an appearance on Fox News Sunday, telling the host that the pardons were among the worst parts of the end of the Trump administration. One of the most unseemly parts of the end was the pardons uh, that Donald Trump gave to cocaine traffickers, to family members, to people guilty of violent crimes, Short said. He went on to say, I think we have to have a real conversation of what uh, would people actually do with the power to pardon. 
There's a couple of people on the stage that have been governors and understand it. But I think even what you look when you look at Donald Trump's record, when it came to pardons, it was indefensible. End quote. Well, President Trump issued 73 pardons and 70 sentence commutations on the 20th of January 2021, his final day in office. The pardon recipients included former White House advisor Steve Bannon, rappers Lil Wayne and Kodak Black, former Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick, who was serving a 30-year sentence on corruption charges. They were among the 70 who had their sentences commuted. Short's comments came the same day that Pence defended former President Donald Trump's right to have his day in court, but dodged questions about whether Trump should be convicted if allegations against him are proven true. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu rejected a city council proposal there that would would have cut funding for the city's police department and veterans services. Our budget must be responsive to the needs of our constituents, fiscally responsible and built on a foundation of effective delivery of city services that are central to our residents' quality of life, Wu said in a letter to members of the Boston City Council on Friday. The Democrat mayor's letter comes uh, After the council approved a $4.2 billion operating budget for the city that would have reduced funding for the Boston Police Department by $31 million and $900,000 in cuts to veteran services. Presidential candidate Mike Pence hit the mainstream media for pushing false narratives in the back and forth interview with the Meet the Press host Chuck Todd on Sunday. The former vice president was asked about the recent indictment against former President Donald Trump over the alleged mishandling of classified documents. Todd noted that Pence previously claimed that similar allegations against Hillary Clinton in 2016 made her unqualified to be president and questioned whether the same applied to Trump. Pence then explained that the larger issue came from the media's disproportionate coverage of political issues, such as the allegations of Russia collusion or the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story. Chuck, the independent counsel, found that the investigation into Russia collusion should never have been initiated. Yet we lived through two and a half years of a constant barrage on your network, on the cable network associated with you and many of the other mainstream media, suggesting that there was Russian collusion. We had public officials suggesting uh, who said rather there was evidence of collusion. Never happened, Pence said. He added, and then I thought it was disgraceful the way big media and big tech essentially colluded to suppress the story of the Hunter Biden laptop in the run up to the 2020 campaign when the FBI actually had the laptop and knew it was legitimate. And so, look, it's hard for me to believe that politics didn't play some role in the unprecedented decision to bring an indictment against the former president. Todd initially pushed back against Pence, claiming that the Trump indictment allegations were proof of a two-tier justice system. It's one more example of a two-tier justice system that we've been living through for seven years. I mean, I have to uh, have to tell you, after seeing Hillary Clinton uh, given a pass, Pence went on to explain But it was also pointed out that it was under the Trump Department of Justice that she was given that pass. ABC host shocked uh, is shocked rather by the post Trump indictment polls showing a statistical tie between he and the sitting president. ABC's Jonathan Carl appeared shocked Sunday by a poll conducted after the indictment of former President Donald Trump that put him just slightly behind President Joe Biden in a potential 2024 election rematch. A poll from Quinnipiac. On a possible Biden-Trump matchup puts Biden at 48 percent and Trump at 44 percent. This is a poll, again, taken largely after the indictment. Uh, That's going to uh, 
to make you that's within the margin of error, he went on to say. That's a statistical tie, uh, Carl said on this week. He asked the panelists, what does that say about Biden if he's barely beating Trump? Donna Brazil, former chair of the DNC, said the polls showed the country is very divided. That's putting it mildly. Well, loneliness is not just bad for men's health. It may be bad for their bones, too, according to a new study. And while socialism or social isolation, rather, may have a negative impact on the bone health of men, this is not true for women, the researchers found. Dr. Rebecca Mountain of Maine Health Institute for Research in Scarborough, Maine, was lead researcher on the study, as multiple outlets reported. The study was presented on Sunday by Indo 2023, the Endocrine Society's annual meeting in Chicago, Illinois. Social isolation is a potent form of uh, psychosocial stress, Dr. Mountain said in a statement, and is a growing public health concern, particularly among older adults. She also said even prior to the onset of the COVID pandemic, which has significantly increased the prevalence of isolation and loneliness, researchers have been concerned about a rising epidemic of loneliness. Social isolation, she also said, is associated with an increased risk for many health conditions, including mental disorders, as well as higher overall rates of illness and death. The impacts of social isolation on bone, however, have not been thoroughly investigated. Future research is needed to understand how these findings translate to human populations. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue our march through some of the weekend headlines and coming up in the second hour, a conversation I had with Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church on Revival. Also want to remind you that if you are planning to attend the special uh, event of um, Stand Up Girl Foundation, you can attend the uh, Upcoming soccer game. Is it soccer? Is it baseball? I don't even know who it is. The Hops versus the Everett Aqua Sox. You have until tonight at 1159 to purchase your tickets. It will be Star Wars night along with um, fireworks. So you know who they are. You can figure it out. Well, President Biden and Senator Fetterman shared some pretty awkward moments speaking in Pennsylvania on Saturday during a press briefing on the recent I-95 bridge collapse. Fetterman donned his trademark hoodie combined with workout shorts and sneakers to welcome the president of the United States to his turf. Meanwhile, Biden forgot where his hometown was, claiming he grew up in Pennsylvania. This, ladies and gentlemen, are the people representing the United States. While speaking about the bridge collapse, Fetterman struggled to pronounce the words such as delegation and infrastructure. Of course, he's recovering from a stroke as he made a muddled one minute statement. Um, little concerning. Julio Rosas reports that President Joe Biden spoke out against uh, stabilizing braces during his speech in which he erroneously claimed putting a brace on a pistol makes it more dangerous because it increases the caliber of the firearm. DNC research points out that uh, Biden made it harder for people to buy stabilized brief braces, uh, put a pistol on a brace. It turns into a gun, makes it more. You can uh, have a higher caliber weapon, higher caliber bullet coming out of the gun. This is the um, oddest thing I've ever heard a politician say about guns. A plastic brace on a gun does not change the caliber of the gun or the rate of fire. 
A federal judge is set to decide whether the administration's effort to stamp out disinformation online crossed the line into coerced censorship. And if so, what should be done about it? Well, the case is among the most potentially consequential First Amendment battles pending in the courts, testing the limits on government policing of social media content. Republican Attorney General's uh, Attorneys General of Missouri and Louisiana brought the lawsuit last year, alleging that the administration fostered a sprawling federal censorship enterprise that pressured social media platforms to scrub away dissenting views on everything from COVID-19 health policies to election security. Missouri versus Biden is among dozens of so-called censorship by proxy lawsuits <coughs> challenging uh, account super uh, suspensions, content removal, and other suppression of social media posts on First Amendment grounds. We will follow that story. Former President Obama wants the government to be able to track and hunt down Americans by their fingerprints if they dare spread so-called misinformation. During an interview with podcast host David Axelrod, the former president called for implementing digital fingerprints as a mandatory online requirement to combat misinformation. The former president suggested the government needs a way to track and identify people who spread so-called misinformation online and who decides what's misinformation is a pretty large question. The former president referenced the COVID-19 vaccine, igniting the need to combat so-called misinformation online, much of which was proven to be correct. On the contrary, Obama was... um, has dabbled in his fair share of spreading misinformation. In 2013, Republicans deemed him the winner of the having the lie of the year after promising Americans uh, they would be able to keep their health care plans under the Affordable Care Act. Well, he suggested digital fingerprints to discern truth from misinformation and the need for us, for the general public, I think, to be more discriminating consumers of news and information. The need for us to, uh, over time, develop technologies to create watermarks or digital fingerprints so we know what's true and what's not true. Apparently, we can't figure that out on our own. There's a whole bunch of work that's going to have to be done there. But in the short term, it's really going to be up to the American people to kind of say the former president went on to say. Senator Tim Scott, a 2024 presidential candidate, rejected former President Obama's critique of his view on race relations. Obama, the first black American to be elected president, said during a recent CNN podcast that voters should be skeptical of GOP candidates who lack a plan to address the consequences of hundreds of years of racism. Recount 2024 GOP candidate Senator Tim Scott reacted to the former president's comments on him and race. There's no higher compliment to be attacked by President Obama. The truth of my life disproves the lies of the radical left, end quote. At least 20 states have either restricted or banned transgender procedures for minors, with many of them facing lawsuits and temporary blocks by courts as a result, while future litigation is possible in states considering adopting such laws. The states that have enacted legislation against such procedures are Alabama, Arkansas, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and West Virginia, essentially all conservative-leaning. Such changes come amid opposition to transgender procedures and minors regretting having had them. The attorney for a young transitioned uh, woman is suing several medical professionals over her transition. She's speaking out, accusing doctors of needlessly performing life-altering surgeries on impressionable youngsters in an exclusive interview. 
uh, Charles Lemandri slammed the recent spate of gender assignment surgeries seen since 2015 as an indoctrination, one that caught up his uh, 18-year-old client uh, and several others before and since. This 11-year-old uh, was told, or I should say this young person who at 11 years old was told, yes, you are transgender, and they began um, the treatment on her, uh, which included a double mastectomy. We'll talk more about that lawsuit at some point in the not-too-distant future. Well, a slip of the tongue has one Democrat saying former President Trump should be shot. Congress uh, Congressional Delegate Stacey Plaskett had to correct herself on Sunday after she said during a live television interview that former President Donald Trump should be shot. Plaskett made the comment during an appearance on MSNBC during which she discussed the federal charges against the former president relating to his alleged mishandling of classified documents following his departure from the White House in January. Freudian slip. Kevin Tober says Delegate Stacy Plaskett slips and says the president needs to be shot. She quickly corrected herself and said stopped. But some are suggesting that if it were on the other foot, a Republican making such a statement about a Democrat, there would be an insistent that that individual step down. Well, the gross national debt reached $32 trillion for the first time in U.S. history on Friday. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that the nation's deficit for fiscal year 2023 will be $1.4 trillion, driving the national debt even higher. Your grandchildren and great-grandchildren will thank you for that. Their prospects are receding. Brandon Whitworth, the U.S. boss of Anheuser-Busch, said Bud Light's parent company will cut checks to reeling wholesalers and distributors, but avoided apologizing for the Dylan Mulvaney fiasco. Whitworth said the discussion surrounding our company and Bud Light has moved away from beer as he announced a three-step plan to revive the tarnished brand on Thursday. The beer baron is uh, yet to directly address the tie uh, tie up with the the influencer, which has led to boycott calls that have knocked Bud Light from its two decade perch as America's best selling beer. Instead, he offered a financial um, olive branch from the Belgian based beer giant that involves investing to protect the jobs of our frontline employees and launching a new campaign ad this summer uh, that will tout the beer as easy to drink, easy to enjoy. Well, we'll see what happens. Sales for Bud Light have fallen by more than 25 percent, and its competitors have since seen a large increase in their sales. Other brands for Anheuser-Busch have also taken a significant hit, including Budweiser, Michelob Ultra, Bush Light, and Natural Light, according to numbers released late last month. Secretary Blinken has bowed to China. Over the weekend, the secretary spent two days there, Uh, Anthony Blinken flew to Beijing, where he met Chinese President Xi Jinping, with tensions rising with China following both the spy balloon float over and Beijing's growing aggression with Taiwan. One would have expected the U.S. Secretary of State to deliver a firm message of warning, but no such message was forthcoming. Instead, Blinken effectively bowed before Beijing's growing aggression as he reiterated the commitment to our one China policy. Indeed, he might as well have told Taiwan to surrender to the Chinese strongman. We do not support Taiwan's independence, he declared, which has been the U.S. position from the beginning. We do not. um, We made it clear, rather, that we oppose any unilateral changes to the status quo by either side. We have been clear and consistent in our policy, and it's very important that we preserve Uh, The status quo that has maintained peace and stability across the strait for decades. 
While noting recent provocations against Taiwan by China, his focus was solely on maintaining the economic trade status quo. President Biden believes strongly that one of the successful aspects of our relationship with China, if you can call it successful, uh, going back five decades has been the responsible management of Taiwan's uh, the Taiwan question. He explained, we continue to believe that's essential. Critics, as you can expect, thought otherwise. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. News and traffic coming up. And later in the second hour, a conversation I had with Greg Allen. Pastor Allen is the is the uh, pastor at Bethany Bible Church, and we'll talk about revival. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to take a few more minutes to take a look at the uh, headlines. And then joining me in the uh, second hour is a conversation I had with Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church on the subject of revival. Well, in a few short years, the U.S. military has gone from a policy of don't ask, don't tell to one where failure to affirm and embrace someone's sexual identity is labeled bigotry and dangerous. A high-ranking Space Force officer, Lieutenant General Deanna Burke, even ridiculously asserted that because several Republican-led states are passing laws banning gender mutilation of children that might lead to potential Uh, recruits to not feel safe being themselves and therefore force her to have to uh, choose less qualified officers. So apparently uh, depriving children of these procedures will make potential cadets less likely to enlist. And is Twitter the hate speech platform? In other Rainbow Mafia news, the CEO of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, Sarah Kate Ellis, recently claimed that Twitter has become the most dangerous platform for LGBTQ people, Ellis's comment came after um, following GLAD releasing its annual social media safety box or index. The index also uh, handed out failing grades to other social media platforms, including Facebook and YouTube. But it highlighted Twitter as the worst with 33 percent score because it allows an alarming and steadily growing epidemic of dissenting opinion. Of course, uh, Ellis' attack against Twitter is an attack against Elon Musk over his commitment to ensure that Twitter is a platform of free speech. In yet another example of Washington wasting taxpayer money included in a $1.7 trillion ominous bill uh, Congress passed last year for 20600 that uh, Joe Biden's State Department is using to promote drag show workshops in Ecuador. Your taxpayer dollars at work. The director of the Abraham Lincoln North American Ecuadorian Center in Ecuador said the program is aimed at young people 15 years of age and older with parental consent, something we don't necessarily see here. It's intended as a cultural exchange and creative expression for adolescents and youth adults to promote tolerance. When did drag shows become quintessential expressions of American culture, one might ask. Furthermore, when did the Marxist-based ideology of diversity, equity, and inclusion replace American foundational ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Well, it might be time to eliminate the spending of America's tax dollars on the promulgation and cultivation of this um, ideology. YouTube censored video of a pride parade as inappropriate content. Anheuser-Busch released a We Hear You statement over the Bud Light backlash. Beer is for everyone, is their new claim. Biden claims the spy balloon was more embarrassing for China, suggesting it really wasn't intentional. Of course, it went all across the fruited plain, taking and transmitting pictures back to the People's Republic. Hunter Biden's shady ex-business partner is in talks with the GOP to testify. 
A Pittsburgh synagogue shooter has been found guilty in the Tree of Life attack, and Teamsters voted for a UPS strike, setting the stage for an historic showdown. That could be uh, devastating by all accounts. On this day in history, 1775, George Washington is commissioned by the Continental Congress as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army. 1865, Union troops arrive in Galveston, uh, Galveston, Texas, with news that the Civil War is over and that all remaining slaves in Texas are free. The event is now celebrated as a federal holiday, Juneteenth. 1934, the Federal Communications Commission is created. It replaces the Federal Radio Commission. 1952, the U.S. Army Special Forces, the elite unit of fighters known as the Green Berets, is established at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. 1953, Julius Rosenberg, 35, and his wife Ethel, 37, convicted of conspiring to pass U.S. atomic secrets to the Soviet Union, are executed at Sing Sing Prison in Ossining, New York. 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is approved after surviving a lengthy filibuster in the Senate. 1987, the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down a Louisiana law requiring any public school teaching the theory of evolution to teach creation science as well. 2017, Otto Warmbier, a 22-year-old American college student, dies in a Cincinnati hospital following his release by a North Korean Authority in a coma after more than a year in captivity. 2018 General Electric, the last remaining original member, is dropped from the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Also in 2018, the United States says it's pulling out of the United Nations Human Rights Council a day after the U.N. Human Rights Chief denounced the Trump administration for separating migrant children from their parents. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, a United Nations human rights expert says in a 101 report that there's credible evidence that Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is responsible for the killing of writer uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Well, the commercial submersible that uh, went missing carrying five passengers while touring the Titanic shipwreck presents a challenging and, and dire situation for rescuers, according to a former Coast Guardsman. They've yet to find and locate the uh, the vehicle. From what I understand, the vessels are not designed for long-range, multi-day excursions. A retired U.S. Coast Guard lieutenant commander who was involved in long-range search and rescue missions says, so it's going to be very, very uncomfortable, a dark experience with lots of hope and prayers. I would say it is extremely serious. It is a dire situation, he continued. But on the other side of that fact, it is still considered classified as a search and rescue mission, which should give everyone hope, including the family members and friends of the people on board the vessel. Coast Guard crews from Boston are leading the search and rescue mission for a missing submarine that was exploring the Titanic shipwreck in the Atlantic Ocean. The vehicle was reported overdue on Sunday, uh, Sunday evening, and authorities have yet to discover the location of the vehicle. The Coast Guard confirmed that they were searching for a lost um, Titan submarine, Tourists can charter the small craft for visits to the infamous uh, ship, the Titanic, through Ocean Gate Expeditions, which recently announced new missions crews for the North Atlantic trip. It's hard to say whenever you just lose total communication in a situation like that, what actually happened until you find the vessel. Nixon went on to say this isn't a common occurrence at all. Obviously, something very rapid and very tragic took place. Well, he said... um, a submerged rescue can be very challenging. 
that uh, through the Coast Guard, uh, they've even though they've been diving, uh, they have diving capabilities. The Navy is definitely very capable of recovering something like this. The location of the search is approximately 900 miles east of Cape Cod in water uh, depth um, of roughly 13,000 feet. The submersible is advertised to have enough life support to keep the, the five people on board alive for 96 hours. Uh, there were there was one submersible commander, four mission specialists on board the Titan. We can certainly keep them in our prayers as the search continues. And again, this uh, began last night, apparently. Coming up, a conversation, a classic conversation I had with Pastor Greg Allen, Pastor of Bethany Bible Church, on the subject of revival. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. As promised, we're going to continue our conversation on events that have taken place beginning in Asbury, Kentucky, and um, or Asbury University in Kentucky, and spreading across the uh, the country having to do with young people, and the discussion that's going on about revival or an awakening. As you probably know, uh, Greg Allen is pastor of Bethany Bible Church. We've had conversations on the subject of revival in the past, and I know that's near and dear to your heart that you and others in your congregation have been praying for and seeking God for revival for a, a very long period of time. We've talked about the history of movements uh, in the country and so on. So I appreciate your joining us today so that we can talk about uh, what, how we should respond to what we've witnessed. <laughs> so thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, let me just ask you to respond to the attention that's recently been brought, not just by the church, but really by the, the nation in general, to what happened in Asbury and then spread across the country that's been characterized as a revival or an awakening. Your thoughts? Well, I'd like to give, first of all, a little bit of a caveat. I am not uh, an expert on what's happening there. Uh, I know a little bit about it. And what, I, what I've heard is exciting. I'm, I'm very encouraged by it. But the posture that I've taken with it is to basically watch and wait and pray. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm watching because obviously there's lots of different opinions about this. Uh, there are people who are critical of it. I think perhaps probably too quickly critical or dismissive. Uh, but at the same time, I think it pays to just make careful observation and watch what's going on. I want to say I'm waiting And the reason I say that is because historically, revivals don't always show themselves to be such until after some amount of time when we see the long-term results and the after-effects of it. And I want to say, too, that I'm praying because obviously I, like so many, want to see revival happen in our time. Um, And uh, whether this is a demonstration of an answer to that prayer or not, I don't know. But I'm praying and praying that uh, God will give revival in our time. This event uh, that we're referencing began in a chapel where students mm-hmm. are required to attend as part of the student body. Um, the speaker apparently had not prepared to speak and decided, since he was given the mic, to just talk candidly about his own life and some of his own struggles. And at the end, he invited students who had similar challenges to just stay and pray. Well, about 18 of them did that. Mm-hmm. And the rest grew into what was a, a days long series of um, prayer meetings and worship services in which young people were crying out to God and confessing their sins, repenting and asking God to do something significant. I don't think they were seeking a political movement. They weren't mm-hmm. seeking a, a church movement. They were 
as individuals coming together in a corporate way, crying out to God and saying, we, we want more. Mm-hmm. Um, this world is not enough. And that in and of itself is encouraging to me. Well, yes, it is. And I, I don't get the impression that they were thinking, hey, let's start a revival. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't something that was intended in that respect. But you have to say anytime anybody desires to get right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, to confess their sins, to seek a stronger and more uh, holy life before him, you can't help but be excited by that. And uh, so from that perspective, um, I think what we're seeing is certainly sincere Uh, And very exciting, and I would desire to see more of it. Absolutely. We're talking about people under the age of 25. And so that's encouraging. It's easy, I think, as a middle-aged, I'm flattering myself to refer to myself as middle-aged. I think I'm actually beyond that. But as a middle-aged person. I'm staying out of this conversation. (laughs) The tendency is, get off the lawn and to shake your (laughs) fist. Young people this and young people that. It's encouraging and it's inspiring to see groups of young people come together for mm-hmm. the sole purpose of honoring God, worshiping him and seeking his face. Oh, yeah. I, it, isn't that something that we've been longing for? And absolutely. For? Absolutely. Yeah. The thing about this is I, we, we use the word revival. And I don't know from your perspective, we've talked often about this, but I'm usually thinking about larger historic events mm-hmm. that have uh, characterized our nation's history. The Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and so forth. And those are the kind of things that seem to dominate my mind when I think of the word revival. But a revival can occur on a small level. It can be that a larger revival movement is composed of several smaller, more localized uh, revival events that uh, God works dramatically in some people's lives and that spreads and or even just influences others. So... Uh, you can't help but be grateful for what you're seeing and, and praying for it to be guided by God's hand, whether this is a larger historic nation-transforming event or just something that God sends an encouragement to us to say, I hear your prayers and I am at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I remember uh, Jason in my previous conversation making mention in his interviews of a one one young man who had uh, piercings on both of his nostrils who had come. And he's just asking, why are you here? What are you looking for? He says, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not religious. I don't know Jesus, but there's something here that I want to know more about him. And he just came to sit in and see what are my peers doing? What are they Mm. talking about? Many of the young people made mention of the fact that they are overwhelmed by our culture and just the struggle um, to reflect a Christ-like character and the challenges that are foisted upon them. Some um, struggle with just being authentic. They didn't feel like they could honestly ask for prayer in certain areas because it would reveal that they are less than perfect. The standard that's set uh, on Facebook and inter- in um, uh, some of the other social media outlets. Others were bombarded with um, with sexual images that were making it difficult for them to exercise self-control. And so they were they're crying out to God, we need help. Mm-hmm. Um, and as as young people were confessing their struggles, others felt free to confess their struggles. And God met them there. And that, to me, was exciting. It, it was a revival in the sense that these young people were revived in their confidence and hope that God was with them and for them and in them and was going to go before them. Uh, beyond that, I, I don't know. Well, in our past conversations, we've talked before about how those major historic revival movements that we've talked about in the past were preceded often by a uh, an overwhelming sense of something has to change mm-hmm. or we are doomed. Um, 
the the characteristic that I've seen in a lot of my reading has been that the church is in kind of a, a state of, of uh, just kind of a loss of a sense of power, a loss of a sense of vision. It's just kind of coasting along. And then the larger culture around us, it seems like it's beyond human remedy. And that begins uh, that prayer within the people of God to say, God, you must do something or we're lost. And perhaps that's what we're seeing in this current generation. The younger people are seeing the future from what they're seeing in the present, and they're realizing this is beyond human help. The Absolutely. resources that they've trusted in, the, the, the uh, fixtures of culture have let them down, and they realize there's no human help here. We must have God's help. And so they're perhaps crying out to him with that longing within the heart that God places in us of himself. Well, that is such a healthy perspective. It's always been true, whether or not we have learned to rely on certain institutions. It's always true that they are insufficient. It's always been true that only God can rescue us from uh, from what we so desperately need. And so for young people to come to a point of recognition um, is such a healthy and biblical approach and a worldview mm-hmm. that, that ought to be encouraged. Mm-hmm. Now, we need to take a uh, take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, talking with uh, Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church. We're talking about Asbury, the revival or awakening. But beyond that, what we should make of and what we should ask God for as we continue to move forward as men and women of faith. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. With me in studio is Pastor Greg Allen with Bethany Bible Church. We're talking about and reflecting on events at Asbury University in Kentucky and other uh, college campuses across the country as well. Now, we use the word revival and awakening quite often. Perhaps we would do well to define those words in a way that we can understand, not just in the context of this uh, series of events, but in general and historically, what is a revival well, and what is an awakening? Are they interchangeable? Yeah, that, that's a great question because when we talk about revival, it's not a word that stands on its own. We have to ask the question, reviving what? Yeah. You know, there's got to be some direction this goes. I have developed a working definition and probably kind of Frankensteined it from different sources, but a revival in my understanding is a gracious work of God. Number one, it's a gracious work. It's not something that we create. It's not something we schedule. It's a gracious work of God in response to the concerted prayers of his people by which the Holy Spirit profoundly renews the church from out of a period of spiritual decline and grants such remarkable power and success to the proclamation of the gospel that it dramatically transforms a generation. That's a mouthful. I had to read it. Mm. I couldn't quite remember. <laughs> that's, so. that's beautifully written, though. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about what's happening on college campuses, these are young men and women, and we're talking about Christian colleges primarily. These are young men and women who are presumably being trained for leadership in the church mm-hmm. and for there to, uh, to be an event like this um, in which they are recognizing their utter dependence on God and and confessing their weakness and asking him to revive them, uh, it seems to me has the potential to have an impact in a, perhaps in a generation, perhaps in a number of years as they assume leadership yeah. roles in various ways as politicians, as pastors, as, uh, as church leaders and so on. Well, you know, revival in the past has often led to a new 
generation of of God's servants rising up uh, for their time. Uh, revivals aren't just experiences where people, you know, recommit to reading the Bible daily or something, but God raises up a generation for a generation. In other words, he'll raise up leaders for their time to dramatically impact their generation. You asked earlier about the difference between revival and awakening, and I think this might be a good time to bring that question Mm in. Uh, And to the best of my understanding, this is all me, I, I don't know, but... Uh, but revi- you are a learned pastor and a leader in the church, so let me just say that. Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying you're infallible, but you. this is not oh, an I uninformed t- opinion. You need to talk to my wife, maybe. But anyway, <laughs> um, a revival, as, my, as I understand it, is a work that God does on his church, uh, where obviously the name revival implies that something is already vived. It needs to be revived. And so a revival, in my understanding, is where God does a work by the power of the Holy Spirit to renew his church and to renew their vision and renew their commitment. An awakening, in my understanding, has more to do with the, uh, the unsaved world, where maybe perhaps uh, before then the world, the people of this world don't care about their soul, they don't care about their condition before God. But suddenly the Holy Spirit does a mighty work in them to help them to see their need. Some have said that in a time of revival, what often happens is that the sinner goes and looks for the evangelist mm-hmm. <laughs> and seeks the evangelist. In John chapter 16, let me read this. In John 16, verses 26 through 27, Jesus talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he said, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and he will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And he later on speaks about how the Holy Spirit would then convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's not a thing that we can do. We can't convict anybody. We can try, and we do a terrible job when we do. But The Holy Spirit has the ability to reach into the inner recesses of the human heart to convict and and to reveal the truth. And what I see is in a revival, God also works in the unbelieving world to awaken them, equipping his church to proclaim the message of the gospel clearly and boldly and in his power and and the unbelieving world given the ability to hear, respond, repent, and believe. One of the phrases that came up often in Asbury was radical humility. And Mm. it's, again, that that dependence, that recognition that I am utterly dependent on God, that in order for things to change, in order for things to uh, move in the right direction, it is utterly dependent upon a move of God. Mm -hmm. And I simply make myself available and I acknowledge that in my own efforts, I'm incapable of making the kind of impact that's necessary and that, uh, again, is such an encouraging thing to hear that came out of yes. uh, this gathering of young people that lasted for a, a period of weeks and h- continues to ripple across the country on college campuses yeah. uh, as well. I covet that myself. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. How might we, um, who aren't college students, we're not under 25, we weren't <laughs> there, uh, and it's easy, I would imagine, to, in that environment, in that atmosphere, to very easily have fallen into, yes, I, this is what I want. How do you and I in Portland, Oregon, um, you know, we have the dubious distinction of being among the least churched in the nation. 
How do you and I pray for revival and seek revival? First of all, asking God, I guess a better way of putting it, recognizing our radical um, humility and our, our dependence on God. How do we participate in what I believe is an ongoing cry of the hearts of God's people all across the country, this recent ser- series of events notwithstanding, that there would be revival in our land that would stretch across the globe. Mm-hmm. How do we um, partake in that? We may not be a part of a large group or a large church that's involved in that kind of um, that kind of praying. What what do I do? Well, obviously, you know, you talk about a your your involvement in a revival. It might not be that you you experience what you're describing. Uh, that we're seeing in another generation uh, undergoing right now. But a revival always, as I've said earlier, is is a product of the concerted prayers of God's people. And so I would say certainly one of the things that we can be doing is uh, faithfully uh, and humbly praying and asking God for this with our eyes open, watching the times that we're living in, mm-hmm. paying attention to what's going on, paying attention to history, paying attention to what God has done in the past, paying attention to his scriptures where he's told us stories in in the scriptures themselves of revivals and transformation of people's lives. But one of the things that I strongly believe in also is in a pursuit of a personal revival, a personal recommitment of certain things in our lives. I would say that if we were going to do that, I'd want to commit to growing in my personal relationship with Jesus Christ a revival in the end, whatever else it may include, has to highlight Jesus Christ and no other. He is the premier focus of, of, of awakening and revival. So ourselves, to commit to grow daily in that personal relationship and obedience to him and faithfulness to him, we grow in our repentance of sin as we grow in that relationship with Jesus uh, in love and in mercy and in a way that he knows best to do. He confronts us about things Mm -hmm. in our lives that need to change. Obey him. Do it. Let him have uh, the the right to occupy your heart fully and get rid of the things that don't belong in there. Um, I would say there needs to be a growth in the reliance on the Holy Spirit in our daily walk. God has put this wonderful helper in us, and we need to turn to him and rely on his support and his help and strength and guidance. We need to grow in reading the Bible. As uh, There's an appalling illiteracy mm-hmm. among uh, professing believers in the Bible. I've heard somebody, some statistics, that the average Christian reads their Bible maybe three times a year. Mm. Uh, but wait, now, isn't that, isn't that your job? You're the professional. I I got to read it. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, well, you know, and and obviously faithful biblical preaching, but there just needs to be that sense of personal devotion to the word of God. There needs to, I'd say here we are post-COVID, we need to get back in church. Watching your pastor on TV is great. That's all fine. But But we need the assembly of the body of Christ. We need to be a part of that body and contribute to it. So growing in regular church involvement and attendance this is a touchy one. There might be some relationships that need to be restored that we've avoided having to go through that hard work with. It might be that the the Lord is saying, I want to take you into a new place where I have prepared, prepared for you, but you can't go there until this is resolved. You know, it's you inter- get- interesting that you mention that. Many of the young people who were interviewed 
said that God confronted them about their relationship with a parent. Is that and right? they resolved to reconcile with the parent before they could move forward. I'm so, sure the parents were yeah. thinking this revival thing is good then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's I fine. To mention that. But I, I, and one more thing in this, um, you know, that passage that I mentioned earlier where the Holy Spirit is the one that brings conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. I remember one theologian saying, always remember that that promise is in conjunction with the faithfulness of God's people to proclaim the gospel. Hmm. And so one of the things that I would say we need to resolve to do is to learn to share our faith, learn how to share the gospel, and have a commitment to speak for Jesus Christ in these times, to speak faithfully his gospel. Don't do self-help things. Point to the gospel, the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. These are resolves that I think would answer your question. How, what can we do? Absolutely. And we're going to take a quick break, but I'm reminded that um, the Apostle Paul said that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I think sometimes we're just a little reluctant. I'm not. It has the power to transform mm. a life. And um, what a privilege it is that he gives us that gift to give to others. Mm-hmm. We'll faithfully um, obey him. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back for our final segment in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show, talking with Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church. We're talking about what happened in Asbury and other college campuses across the, the country. One of the things I noted was people hopped on a plane or a bus or in their car and they drove there. They wanted to be there. And certainly witnessing that had to have been thrilling. But it occurred to me, you don't have to be there. Mm. There was nothing sacred about that piece of ground that somehow you step onto the ground and you're transformed that we have access uh, to the throne of grace from our own uh, from our own knees in our own living room or our own prayer closet so we don't have to necessarily go there we don't have to be a spectator god calls us as individuals and as uh, corporate believers in the body of christ to come before him anywhere at any time mm-hmm. yeah i one of the things that would make me cautious is if the response to this remarkable event is that a a place becomes central rather than Christ himself. Um, that is, is somewhat natural. People are wanting to go to a place where they see something exciting like that happening. But if we begin to uh, sanctify a place as if that's where God is working, I, I think we might be going off the track. Uh, you're absolutely right. The Holy Spirit is is the indwelling helper of every believer, and that means anywhere, at any time, I could look at what's going on in a place and I can pray fervently, God, do mm-hmm. that here. Do that in me. And uh, that, I think, is the right po- right focus. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we as believers in this community have a tremendous capacity as individuals and as corporate believers to pray in just that mm-hmm. way, and God will hear us because we're praying according to his will. Um, this requires a, a, a great deal of um, humility on our part and a commitment mm-hmm. to uh, to obey him, to listen and to follow. I, I guess my final question to you is um, what expectations we should have. I know a lot of people mm-hmm. have set very big expectations about what happened at Asbury and in other college campuses. This is the the first step towards something else or some are suggesting that this is just a um, an, an emotional uh, series mm-hmm. of events. How should we? set expectations or should we 
uh, following these events? I think there's a reasonable level of expectation, certain things that we should watch for. Mm -hmm. I want to be careful in my answer of this because many people have, I think, unduly criticized this movement or movement because uh, of the emotional, you know, expression, expression. Yeah. Yeah. And I would expect that when God works mightily in us, we should have some pretty exciting feelings about it. But if it, if if it only ends there, then, then that's, that's not what I would be looking for. If I were to look on the long term of what would impress me as being a truly, a true revival, a work of God, the thing that I would see, number one, most of all, is Jesus Christ exalted. Not our feelings, not our experiences, but Christ himself, that Christ becomes our Lord, Christ becomes our object of worship, Christ becomes our master, our dearest friend, our savior. He becomes everything to us. So, and, and that we increasingly allow him to have the dominance in our heart and our life. So number one, number one, Jesus Christ dominant. That's what I would see first. Now, beyond that, I would look also for, um, I would, I would look for uh, renewed passion for God's word. Mm. Um, in every revival movement that you can think of, uh, the, the, the preaching of the word, and I don't mean just people going to their Bibles, certainly, but there's something about the faithful proclamation of God's word by God-appointed leadership in churches, faithfully preaching the word. Uh, that's something that I would expect to see. And in fact, I have a right to expect that because when you go to the scriptures, you find clear evidence of that. When you go to the story of Nehemiah chapter 8, for example, that was a revival. Nehemiah chapter 8, you're seeing a revival described. And what's impressive about that is you see that they build a pulpit and they proclaim the word of God and explain it. They preach expositionally to the people and it moves them and it transforms them. Or you can think of the Revival under King Hezekiah, for example, in Second Chronicles mm-hmm. 28 and on uh, 29, um, that was a revival of the Word of God. People began to hear, they began to go search the Scriptures, and King Hezekiah took the lead in this, but led them to obedience to the Word of God. So I would say um, the, the preaching, the preaching of the Word and the emphasis of the Word of God, I would say obedience, renewed obedience to Christ and to his commandments, that we do a searching of our heart to see where we may be uh, disobeying him. I, I would caution against uh, searching our hearts in order to find something to confess, because I think that the Holy Spirit brings these things to us yes. at the right moment. You know something else that I would expect, and I've been thinking about this a lot, if a real genuine movement is a genuine revival movement from God, we should expect persecution. Now, we don't like to talk about that part of it. When we pray for revival, I think we need to be sensible about it and realize we're praying for something that the devil will fight against fervently. He doesn't care if we have emotions. He doesn't care if we we have feelings. But when we start to preach Christ, Mm, when we start to proclaim the Word of God, when we start to evaluate our behavior in the light of the scriptures, when we no longer judge the Bible by culture, but we judge the culture by the Bible, that's an attack to the devil, and he will put a stop to it if he can. So 
I would expect to see opposition. I would expect to see trouble and, and, and persecution, frankly. Some of the young people who came to Asbury confessed that they felt isolated and alone on their campuses because there were no other Christians who were speaking mm. and proclaiming the gospel boldly. And and what you've just described is what they feared um, as the move of God in their hearts urges them to stand for God's word and to speak boldly. They're going to experience that kind of opposition or persecution. Yeah. I think for me, um, you know, the the events may not have taken place in just the way I would have uh, prescribed them. Uh, the students may not have looked like I thought they should have been uh, you know, sort of looked as they sung and joyfully danced in the in the uh, sanctuary. But my prayer is that this generation of young people who were involved in and Asbury and different college campuses, that God would continue to do a deep work in their lives. These are the future leaders mm-hmm. uh, that God is going to call into leadership. They're going to be um, teachers and pastors and church leaders and politicians that what began in them in these days would mature and grow and bear fruit. And in the future, there would be a boldness and a willingness to proclaim, as you've described, the gospel of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. that they would become committed to to knowing God's word and to follow him wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the days ahead, but I can pray in that way for these young people that um, whether or not they were as genuine as we would hope or they would fall short, but that God would continue that deep work in them. And we'd see fruit at some point in the future. And I think, too, that we would want to watch for what is unique about this generation, because in the past, God has done revivals, brought about revivals that have have unique features to the times. I mean, think about mm-hmm. the, the, the Great Awakening was spread through preaching in churches. The second Great Awakening was a new innovation, uh, camp meetings, tent meetings. Uh, the the telegraph that the facilitated the third great awakening in the 1860s. Well, look at our times where we're living right now. We have things that have never existed in human history. I can write a sermon and preach it in my little church here in Portland, and somebody listen to it in Israel. That's right. And that means that there are some elements to the situation that we're living in that God may use and may use the expertise of this generation to spread revival in a way that we never could have imagined. Yeah. <laughs> it won't look like what we thought. That's right. But it'll be still the same God and still the same gospel. To God be the glory for what he has done and what he will do. Well, Pastor, I so appreciate your joining us to help put this into perspective and to set our expectations uh, in a biblical way to be encouraged and hopeful and how to pray for those who are part of these events, but also how we can come before God on our own and ask him to revive us. And I appreciate your heart. It's, it's so refreshing to see your enthusiasm for this, too. Thank you. Hey, you've been listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We are out of time. Do want to thank Pastor Greg Allen for joining us and Jason Williams earlier in the program. If you didn't hear that conversation, you can go to our podcast uh, to hear that uh, conversation on his article as well. want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Moppin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.